Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. And with me today, I have Nathan Fox and Graham Blake. Uh, Graham, how are you doing? Doing good, Ben. Nathan? Awesome, yeah. Oh, good. Well, we're excited to have you back, Graham. It's been a, a few months now, I think. Yeah, time flies. Yeah, it does. Um, and I don't know, Nathan, do you have any updates before we get into these topics? Oh, I don't know. I played golf all weekend. Uh, that was delightful. Just, you know, life in California. I've got a new class started. I know you do too. Graham, what have you been up to? I'm making some videos now, so I've been fiddling with drawing software, trying to find one that looks nice. Cool. Well, so I guess you're doing that for the games. You're making videos for the games and um, other yeah, I'm doing well. them for yeah for other sections too. I don't know. It's all it's all pretty new. Cool. Well, that's exciting. Um, all right. So today we have a lot of good questions, and I guess you've gotten a lot of these questions from Reddit, right, uh, Graham? Yep. Cool. So uh, we'll be going over the success of retaking the test. I guess someone did a survey on that and found some interesting results. Um, a lot of people are also confused about what materials are out there because there are so many. So what's the best materials to use and so forth. And then we're going to get into necessary versus sufficient, which is always a, a tough topic for people. And then lastly, this piece on those schools that are getting rid of the LSAT, right? Um, which will be interesting, or at least not, not requiring you to take it for acceptance into their school. Um, well, let's go back to the first one. The, the, what's the success of people, at least according to this survey, who retake the test? And can you tell us a little bit about the, the survey and what it sure. found? So this was a, a fairly active user of the Reddit LSAT form and the law school admissions form. And they got 130 people who responded, and they found it was they got about a five point increase on retakes. However, as a caveat, this is a self-selecting sample. Uh, for instance, just from what they found, it's largely men because that's Reddit's demographic, 73 percent. And also, I've found on Reddit uh, or any forum, people won't really speak unless they're like getting 165 plus. People are kind of embarrassed if they're anywhere lower than that, though they they shouldn't be to talk about their score publicly. But they feel so on these forums. People often say they get the impression that like everyone's doing well, which is statistically false. So I don't know if everyone who responded are like only those that were already doing applications already improved their score, or if this is actually a representative sample of the kinds of improvements you can see when you retake. So that's interesting because the. So basically, if we were to sum this up, this survey is saying of the people who took the survey, they saw an increase of about five points when they retook it. Yeah. But from what I understand, LSAC's data says that increase is about two points. Yeah, actually, hold on. Oh, actually, sorry, not five points, four points. Okay, so this survey found a median score was four points, and you were saying LSAC found two? Okay, so I think uh, there's a couple numbers here. One, I think going from... When you take the test officially the first time and then retake it a second time, the survey was saying it went up five points. And and then from the second time, for those who decided to take it a third time officially, they went up another four points. So we're not talking about practice tests or anything like that. But then that last number, 
is from the diagnostic, and I assume that was from someone's unofficial first test to their final test, whatever that was, whether that was they took it once officially or they took it three times officially, whatever their final official score was, they saw an 11-point increase from the initial unofficial diagnostic to that. Okay, so going back to the retake numbers, five-point increase for the first to the second retake, and then four points from the second to the third, which would be, well, I don't, I don't know what it was for those people who actually took it three times because you can't just add those together. But um, that's substantially higher than LSAC, which I think is saying when you retake it, the average increase is two points. Yeah. Now, is that LSAC, I'm assuming they've got their data, just they've got the whole set of retakers and they the, can just look at what exactly. the changes. Yeah, that's what they're looking at. Now, of course, we don't know what those people are doing. I strongly believe that the numbers you're seeing in the survey are totally possible if you're the sort of person who actually proactively does something between the first test and the second one, or the second one and the third one. So in some ways those numbers don't surprise me, and the LSAC numbers don't surprise me either because that's just looking at everyone, and who knows how many people are just taking it once, and then for whatever reason not doing anything but taking it again. I guess we just we don't really know. Yeah, but that's, I think that we know commonsensically that that's exactly what's happening, right? I mean, the people that are on Reddit, the people who are responding to this sort of a survey, they're on Reddit slash LSAT. And so they're there, like, reading about the LSAT and finding study plans and getting help for the things that they don't understand. So they're going to improve when they retake the test. Um, like you say, Ben, the LSAC, if they're, if they're just reporting, oh, it's a two-point increase between first and second LSAT on average, some people interpret that as, oh, so never retake the LSAT, there's no point. But the LSAC is seeing all of those thousands of people out there who just stupidly take the test with no preparation and then take it again with no preparation. And of course, they're not going to improve. I mean, I think that the three of us, at least anecdotally, can confirm that that's what is happening out there in the world, right? Haven't we all had dozens of students who have come to us after taking the LSAT twice and doing shitty both times. Yeah. I think as tutors we're gonna see the sample skew in the opposite way that like people are gonna come when they've they've tried a bunch of other stuff and had a poor run of uh, success at like multiple takes. I've I've definitely seen a lot of students like that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I was just saying we don't know for sure exact exactly what's going on with that data, but it seems I totally agree. It seems very likely that's what's going on. So yeah, I I think the the big there there's a pretty big problem. There's a pretty bad myth out there about not retaking the LSAT. Um, I've seen students who have even done well on their practice tests and then had a bad day on the their one LSAT attempt and scored yeah. five points worse than their practice tests, and then like not taken the test again because oh well no I mean LSAT LSAC data shows that you're only going to improve by two points so why would I take it again and I'm like your practice test scores are five points higher than your actual score on record of course you need to take it again <laughs> but, yeah no, I agree I agree 100 percent in fact like when exactly that situation when people do take it and they get a score and they ask me should I take it again the first thing I ask is well what were you scoring right before that because like you said if it was Three points or five points higher on average than what they actually got on the official test, even if they did nothing and re- went back and retook it, odds are 
it's going to go up. Not that I would say do nothing. I'd say take advantage of this time and do something. But yeah, I do. I do tell people that though. I mean, I say, listen, your practice test scores were averaging one sixty five. The last five practice tests that you took, you averaged one sixty five, and then you scored one fifty nine on the real thing. Uh, I would bet money on you three months from now retaking the test. Even if you do nothing in between now and then, I would bet on you to improve on your 159. But you're not going to do nothing in between now and then. You're going to continue to study. And hopefully your practice test scores will go up even more in between the next, you know, in between now and the next administration of the test. And of course you're going to do better than your 159 on a retake. Yeah. Yeah. And even like a three, four point difference can make a, a big change in admissions prospects. So I think it's hard to overstate how much of a good idea it is to retake if there's a, a plausible reason to think that you would score higher. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the one we're talking about is if you have practice test scores on record that are higher than your than your official score, that's a no-brainer that you should retake. Um, another scenario that I can think of is, of course, if you didn't do any preparation the first time around, and then and you're going to do some preparation the second time around, then that makes you a good candidate for a retake. Yeah, definitely. What else? You know, I I had a girl who had a migraine headache on the day of the test. Should should she retake? Oh, uh, for sure. I would say yeah. Probably. I mean, I, I would answer that one depending on how her score was compared to her practice test scores. Because if she's scoring one sixty five and she had a migraine and got one sixty seven. Yeah. Then <laughs> I don't think the migraine really plays into it. <laughs> no, I don't think this was that sort of migraine. I think this was more yeah. like the I'm blind now and I have to quit taking the test. Yeah. Um, okay, so right. So anyway, we all agree it's pretty clear your practice test scores are a good indicator of what kind of score you're capable of. If you work hard in practice, you can raise your practice test scores. And if your practice test scores are higher than whatever score you have on record, then it becomes an absolute no-brainer that you should retake the test for for you know what you kill a Saturday. Maybe you don't get to go out the night before, uh, and it costs one hundred and seventy-five dollars, and that's it. But if you get three more points, now all of a sudden you're into law schools that you weren't into before. You're getting scholarship money from schools that gave you zero. All manner of good things happen when you can bump your score by even just a few points. I also think a, a good case for a retake is if their logic games score on average or on test day is like somewhere meaningfully below perfect. Because I, in my experience, it's a very perfectable section. So if someone's getting like minus five, minus seven on games, and they've been consistent or not, then there's definite room for improvement if they really buckle down on games. And I think it could be worth calculating how many extra points they could get if they were getting perfect there and what that would get them. Yeah, that's another great point. Another good reason to, of course, buckle down and, and put the time in and improve your practice test scores, right? That's the that's the critical thing I think that people don't understand is that your practice test scores just don't lie. Yeah. Yeah, or at least a, a number of them, right? It one, yeah, you can get a little lucky or you can get a little unlucky on one test, but... Right, your last the average of your last five timed practice tests that just does not lie. So, Graham, uh, on your point about the games, I, I completely agree. If your game score is a, a little bit lower, um, then that's a section you most likely can't improve on. What do you suggest to people in that situation? 
I suggest repetition. Seven uh, Sage has a good video on this foolproof method of logic games, and I actually figured this out like when I was first started tutoring. I would see the same games with different students, and the first time through, I might have like a bit of you know I could talk them through it, but it might be a bit difficult. And then every subsequent time I saw the game, I would just get better and better and develop this super efficient method. Like, oh well, I don't have to do all those steps there. I could just do this, and that solves the question in like fifteen seconds. And then I found that as I started doing new games, these patterns and like efficient methods that I saw in the old ones actually carried over onto new ones because the games don't actually have that much variation. And so I think if you repeat games and are like constantly trying to think like how could I do this better? How could I do this better? Um, you can develop this mental map of the types of things that work on games, and that will give you an intuition for the new ones too. So first, I should say I completely agree with that, and I tell my students to repeat games. And a lot of times, there's a little bit of skepticism at first, like, "What's the value in this? I've already seen this game, and so forth." That said, for that particular Seven Sage video, I think doesn't he suggest to do all games ten times? And if so, I guess I'm I'm a little hesitant to just say let's do all games ten times. I, I feel like there's a marginal benefit there that decreases, and so if it's a particularly hard game, maybe you'd end up doing it ten times. But for most people, I would say a game could be sort of mastered, so to speak, in two to three times, maybe four or five, depending on if it's a really really tough game. But thoughts on that? Yeah, I would amend that to say. Well, I think he said in the video like ten times is not too many, but it wasn't super clear. What I would actually say is like do it until you've mastered it. And you know whatever that is, if it's two, three, five, if it's a super hard one, maybe ten. But like, don't don't just do games like ten times again and again and again. The goal is to get an efficient method, and then once you meet your standards for that, then you're done. Yeah, Nathan, any thoughts on that? Oh, um, yeah. I, I mean, I've never taught my students to redo games. Um, it's never seemed necessary to me. The games, you know, the sequencing games are all the same. The grouping games are all the same.、Um, I don't think doing redoing games is going to hurt you. I for sure don't think it's necessary.、Um, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat, right? I mean, the important thing I think is to do a little bit of studying every single day, and over time you're going to get a lot better. That's like a no-brainer, you know. But I mean. Us arguing about how many times you should retake a game is a little bit like arguing about which workout method is the best.、Yep. When, <laughs> when the truth is, like, go to the fucking gym. You know, get、mm-hmm. there every day and do something. And as long as you're there and you're doing something productive, then then you're gonna do great. So I'm, yeah, I'm I'm in favor of redoing games. I just don't think there's like any magic number or any like super secret perfect formula other than. Show up every day and do a little bit of work and get a little bit better. <laughs> Sounds good.、Um, all right. So for this next one, how should I prepare? What materials do I need?、Um, there's a lot of stuff out there: Power Score books, Kaplan books, Barron's awful books in the library. <laughs>、um, what I don't know, Graham. Thoughts on this? So, yeah, I'd say. The number one thing everyone should have is a bunch of prep tests, and the cheapest place to get those is those books of ten they sell on on Amazon. But I think everyone should have at least prep test fifty two onwards, and probably some of the ones before that too. 
and then after that, some kind of strategy guide or video course or like something that basically gives commentary and guidance on the prep tests. And I think there's a bunch of different things that are sort of widely recommended on forums that are all pretty good options, like the LSAT Trainer or Powers 4 or the Manhattan Books. I'm pretty agnostic on what people use. Um, the main thing is to just start by exposing yourself to the material and be, have some guide you can refer back to and then sort of alternate between the two of them, constantly trying to think about how you could be doing things better. Okay. Nathan? Yeah, I mean, there are some materials that I would definitely recommend people avoid. Um, the Kaplan books that I've seen are pretty terrible. The Princeton Review materials that I've seen are pretty terrible. Um, I'm skeptical still about the LSAT trainer because it tells people to read the question stem first on the logical reasoning, and I just think that's ridiculous. Um, uh, I know Blueprint teaches that as well. I, I still am just, I can't believe that anybody thinks that's a good idea, but there it is. Um, go, Graham, yeah. I was going to say, actually, I agree with you on the stems, except I also think that may not matter as much as we think. M meaning, I read, I read the stem, the question first, and the stem second, like you. Yeah. But then I've talked to a bunch of other tutors who read the stem first and, like, what are you doing? But they're clearly doing well on the LSAT. So. But think how much better they just... would do if they didn't do that. <laughs> ben, what do you do first? <laughs> I, I do read the passage first, and then I read the, the question stem. Well, we've beat this to death. I'm sorry for bringing it up. Um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I do like the Power Score Bibles, um, and I, Graham's first thing is the, is the first thing, which is make sure that you get yourself a big stack of real LSAT tests. If you're doing anything other than real LSAT tests, I think you're wasting your time. But beyond that, there's a bunch of good materials out there that cover real LSAT questions. I think if you're doing that, then you're, then you're in good shape. So a question that I get a lot is, how many tests should I take before I take the test? Any thoughts on that? You know, I actually don't know. Um, people sometimes ask that, like, wondering if there's, like, a magic number that works. And I don't know that there is, because everyone seems to have a very different learning curve to this test. But I would say it's hard to do too few time tests. Like, a lot of people... There's there's some advice out there that says like don't do timed work you don't need to do time practice, and I I don't agree with that I think people should be doing time tests fairly routinely maybe one a week from the start just as a way to like whatever studying you're doing on time to also have this timed practice as context that lets you constantly be thinking about how your strategies can work fast and under time pressure. But I don't know twenty thirty. Yeah, how many tests should I do is a little bit like someone asking how many push-ups they should do. It's like, well, I don't know. Are you happy with where you're at right now? <laughs> okay, no? All right, well, do some push-ups then. And then tomorrow, you know, ask yourself the same question. So if you're, if you score, some people do score 175 the first time they take a test, right? So yeah. if you take one practice test and it's 175, I'd say sign up for the test and go take the real thing and be done with it. But if you take your diagnostic and you're at 145 and you want to get to 165, then you've got some work ahead of you. So I don't know what the average student improves by. In my, in my experience, the average student improves by like a point and a half per week. So maybe six points a month worth of studying. 
And I think, Graham, you're right. I think you should be doing at least one timed test per week. Uh, you don't have to do that all at once, right? You can do 35 minutes here and 35 minutes there. And by the end of the week, you've got one full test that you've done. If you're going to do at least one full test per week <clears throat> um, and you need to improve your score by 18 points, you're going to study for like three months, then you're going to do like 12 or 14 practice tests. You know, it's it's rough math. I don't again. I don't think there's like any kind of a magic number. But yeah, that, Ben, you're right. That is a question that we get all the time, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess one thing we can clarify here is that for most people, you're probably going to have a minimum of six to eight, which sounds really low, actually, to me. But I would say that for sure because I'm surprised by how many people go take it and they've only taken two or three, and so at least get in your mind six or eight, I would say, for most people. Yeah, that's a good point. Go ahead, I was just going to say, because 20 to 30 is a pretty intimidating number, and don't let that put you off from like doing practice tests at all. That's Ben's got good advice, like six to eight minimum for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you don't do six to eight, you don't really have an idea where you're at. You know, you if you don't do that many, you won't get to see any kind of a trend, and, and you'll just have kind of a few data points that don't really mean anything. So yeah, I, I've been I've been a little bit shocked. I've seen some people who took a test master's class or sometimes took a blueprint class, and then they come to me and I say, "Well, you know, can I see the record of your practice test scores?" And they've got like they've done like three tests that they completed. I don't know if they just didn't do the assignments from blueprint or test masters, or if blueprint and test masters just doesn't emphasize full practice tests as much as I do. But I yeah, I don't I don't think they do. Um, yeah. I've talked with some companies and they, they often have like maybe three as part of the course and then that's it. They have like on they just assign homework. Yeah, that's puzzling to me. I mean I just I don't know why they don't do more. If you're not doing real tests, you you don't really have any idea where you're at. Yeah. I think I think when you're targeting sort of the, the median student, like a lot of people don't necessarily a lot of people take a class might not have time to do tests or they might not want to do that. And so if you're assigning something that only part of your class can do, it'll create divergences. I'm not I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I think that might be why they're they're doing it that and that actually if you're very motivated, then you're probably better off not taking a class because those classes are aimed at someone who's just wants to follow a set thing that's not too difficult. People that want to throw money at the problem instead of actually yeah. doing something about doing the work. Yes, I suppose. I suppose. I don't know. Huh. Um, I wanted to to just add something on time tests. Uh, I, I hear a lot of people say like, "Oh, I've been you know studying with PowerScore or Manhattan or whatever," and like, I know so much more now, and I really understand things better. I hear this a lot, and it's actually a very strong sign of that person not knowing things better, or at least their practice, their practice test scores do not improve if they, they haven't been taking them, or if they do take them, there's been no change. So the only real measure of what you know is your score on a time practice test. There's a lot of like, you know, you read about something and you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But if it doesn't translate into like actual ability to intuitively do things, then it's hard to say that you've learned in, a, in the sense that you want it to. I think this is maybe we're in episode thirty, Graham, and I think that might be the, my favorite point that anybody has made on this show <laughs> ever. Because um, I hear that all the time. I get people that can categorize type one and type two and type three and type four and type four point A on the different logical reasoning question types, and then their scores have not improved at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So I, I don't want to be too contrarian here, but I have to say that although I agree with the idea that at the end of the day, the only thing that does matter is scores, I am nervous about people who look at scores and say, okay, well, I got this question right, or I got this, I did this well in this section, so I'm good to go. Because sometimes I feel like we get questions right, and it's the way that question was worded, but if it had been given to us in a different way, we might have gotten it wrong. And that's still like a not full understanding of the test, so there's more learning that could be taken away from there. So I think learning is not the end-all be-all. Like you're saying, Graham, you have to see that in the results, otherwise who cares? But at the same time, I don't think that results necessarily mean, oh, these results are going to repeat themselves in the future if the rationale isn't necessarily right or if the learning hasn't fully taken place. I don't know that that's exactly the point that he was making. I mean, I, I, I think he was saying if your scores haven't improved, then you probably haven't learned as much as you as you think you have. Um, yeah, I, I don't think, I don't, I mean, Graham, I could be wrong. I don't think that you were necessarily disagreeing with what I'm saying here, but I think that there is a mistake that sometimes people get into like, oh, I got this question right, or I got, I got, I did this game and I got these right. And it's like, wait a sec, that wasn't necessarily for the right reasons or. I'm just concerned about that because then it's not necessarily going to be repeated and then they're going to wonder what happened even though they thought they had kind of reached you know, their understanding because of their scores. So I think that's a very good point. I would say if your practice test scores are going up, then you're probably reducing that kind of false understanding happening because that's um, then if on average you're getting more questions right, then you're probably on average understanding things better. But uh, to your point about people saying, like, oh, yeah, I understand this, but then they, in fact, have made a, a critical error, just a critical error that didn't cost them a point, that's definitely something to watch out for. I think it actually fits with this, like, oh, yeah, I, I know this better. I've learned some stuff thing. Um, basically, whenever I hear people say, like, I understand this, that's, like, the most common thing that people who aren't improving say. Whereas people who are like 168 plus, I almost never hear them say like, oh yeah, I understand uh, strength in questions or I understand conditional logic. Like I just, I don't hear them say that because I think once you say I understand, it's implied to like, well, I don't need to learn any more about that. And those words sort of indicate that they're kind of looking for validation about their level of knowledge rather than actively trying to increase that level of knowledge. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a very good point. I, I'm thinking of sometimes people I work with who um, it's almost like this, the higher they score, the more they come to the session with questions where you might expect the opposite, but it's sort of like, okay, I got this right, but I, I'm just, is D wrong for this reason? I want to understand that. Whereas someone else who has a lower score would just be like, hmm, well, no, I get this. No questions. Totally. People that score 170 plus will ask me the most questions about a section, even though they got like three wrong. It's the difference between like a scientific kind of a mindset and not having a scientific kind of a mindset, right? The better you get at this, the more you realize that everything that you know is really just kind of a hypothesis and you're, and you're still on a kind of never ending quest to 
figure it out and you're getting maybe closer to truths, but there is no such thing as, as truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, the next question is, well, actually, uh, I th- this is what I understand the question to be. What is the difference between sufficient and necessary? How is it tested on the test? And how can, in general, we become more, um, I guess, precise about logic? Graham, am I understanding this question correctly? Yeah. So this is, um, I think that's it. Like, how do you translate this uh, understanding of a sufficient and necessary condition to something intuitive so that you don't just like get things backwards. Like this poster wrote, to enter my school cafe, I need an ID. I have a school ID, therefore I can enter that cafe. And something like that like makes sense. Yeah. Because in, in the real world, they can in fact enter the school with their ID because the ID is also a well, actually, no, I that's not quite right. They're they're thinking of situations where this is true and not thinking of situations where this is not true. Such as if like the school is locked and no one can get in. Yeah, what they haven't done, I, this, by the way, um, to interrupt a little bit, we're going to post links to all of these Reddit threads uh, in the show notes on thinkinglsat.com. So if you want to see the actual pages that we're looking at, um, you can just go to thinkinglsat.com and, and look this up. But this, for this example, to just repeat it one more time, the example that the poster said is, to enter my school cafe, I need an ID. That's the premise. But then, and I think this happens frequently, the poster actually doesn't even doesn't accept their own premise or they didn't they they weren't really giving you an if then statement i think what they really meant was like if and only if like to get into the cafe i need an id and if i have the id then i can get in so then they're they're then when he says well but so i have a school id therefore i can enter the cafe i mean what's wrong with that and it's like well no right and then then graham you're right about what if the cafe is closed what if it's blown up etc yeah, so this is um this is a a tough topic. It's interesting too because you talk about it in class and you talk about the rules and I like to tell people, you know, the if clause is the sufficient condition, the then clause is the necessary condition. And then I will try to test them with counterintuitive examples. So, for example, um if you win the marathon, then you get $10,000. Uh Sammy didn't win the marathon, so what do we know? And a lot of people will jump in and say, well, he didn't get $10,000. And some people will be like, wait a sec. We don't know that he might have gotten $10,000 from somewhere else, but he didn't get $10,000 from the marathon. And that, that's not even technically true based on what I said. So I like to I like to give people counterintuitive examples until they can sort of break their, get away from their intuitive reaction because they just have to like, no, I feel like no. That if is sufficient, then is necessary, and it doesn't really matter what you might think in the real world. You just have to accept that statement for what it is, and then treat it accordingly. Especially because on the test, they're going to eventually give give you totally abstract, um, yeah, totally abstract principles, right? Like they're going to say, if yeah. not y, then x. And you have to know how to deal with that based solely on the if and the then rather than some sort of common sense understanding of of X and Y. Exactly. So, Nathan, what do you usually do to help people grapple with this necessary versus sufficient? 
Um, you know, repetition helps an awful lot. I mean, every single test contains a flaw question that that confuses a sufficient condition for a necessary condition. Or at least, you know, show me one that doesn't. I, I haven't seen a test that doesn't have the sufficient necessary flaw on it. So I think if you just keep grinding away, you're definitely gonna run into the flaw again and again and again, and hopefully eventually the LSAT will beat it into you, if nothing else. Um, on the first night of class, I do very basic if-then examples. I usually just make one up on the fly. Um, you know, something like, if you're eaten by a shark, then I know you're dead. Does that mean that everyone who's dead was eaten by a shark? Yeah. Nope. <laughs> Hopefully not. Actually, that'd be good. Then we'd, that'd be the only way we die, so. Right, so so those those kinds of simple examples, I think, can, you know, and then the, the really basic one, you know, if you're in San Francisco, then I know you're in California. Does that mean that everyone in California is in San Francisco? No. And so I think I, I like to show it to people with like really basic, really obvious examples first. I teach them how to do the contrapositive, which I say is a two-step process, switch the order and switch the signs. I do that on the, on the whiteboard. And then, you know, I think a lot of times I'll have them try to write their own example of the sufficient necessary flaw mm -hmm. um, and trade, trade with a partner and then like critique each other's example and maybe do a couple of them in the class. I mean, I've experimented with different ways of doing this, but I think once you understand that flaw, then you've really got it. Cause then, then you can see that, you know, if I say, okay, now here we go. Ready? If X, then Y, does that mean if Y, then X? And everyone says, you know, because now they can just see that eaten by a shark example or the San Francisco, California example. And they can say, oh no, you didn't do the contrapositive the right way. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I think a lot of examples makes sense. In, in this post, Graham, it referred to some some bun bunch of examples. Is that oh, that's in the LSAT trainer, right? Did I say that? Uh, uh, no, it's in. It's, sorry, I, I know you don't. You're not the author of Reddit. Oh um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I see that here. Another comment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so examples I think can be really helpful. I don't know. What else do you guys do? Um, I would just add, everything you said was was good. I think repetition is a big key to it. The other thing I would add is like just to be very aware that there are common mistakes that people make that they'll take a necessary for a sufficient or they'll negate it like in Ben's example. Well, if you win, you'll get money. So if you don't win, you won't get money. That's an right. negation. And if you just like get a couple clear examples of what these errors are and know that your brain is like primed to make these and it, you actually have to actively train it out of it with like weeks and months of effort rather than just like, oh yeah, incorrect negation, yeah. got it. And if, if you're aware that you're fallible, then I think that is a big part of getting better. Yeah, it's really, by the way, I mean, just since you bring it up, it's the, the, the flaws that people make, there's only two of them, and they're the exact same flaw, logically speaking. So uh, not to bore you guys too much, but the listeners might be interested. Uh, if you're eaten by a shark, then I know you're dead. Let's accept that as a, as a fact, okay? If you're eaten by a shark, not just bitten by a shark, but eaten by a shark, then we know that you're dead. <laughs> that does not mean that every dead person was eaten by a shark. And it also does not mean that if you were not eaten by a shark, then you're not dead. 
that's the same logical flaw though, right? Yeah. The, 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 the logical objection would be like, well, what about the dude who dove headfirst into an industrial meat grinder? <laughs> like he's dead and he didn't get eaten by a shark. And it's like, that's the answer to both of those flaws, right? The guy who died any other way is the, is the answer to both of those logical flaws. So when you teach, you can teach those logical flaws. Actually, those two logical flaws are the contrapositives of one another. I show that on the whiteboard to people. And then I think, then finally it eventually clicks and then, and then they get to the contrapositive, which is, oh, if you were not dead, then you could not have possibly been eaten by a shark. And yeah, that's, that's a fact. It, it's kind of, you know, it. you guys know, it's simple, right? Yeah. I mean, it really is just, it's all it is is just common sense. But you have to master this one little bit of common sense. You have to master it thoroughly so that you can then do it in the totally abstract so that when I say if B, not C, you can just spout off immediately, oh, so if C, not B. But that, that takes some practice. Yeah, and not just in the abstract, but also when they give you something that's not necessarily consistent with our real-world experience. Like the if-then statement itself may not be true. Like if you take the LSAT, then you can go to law school. That's not necessarily true, but given what they've said, you would then have to accept the idea that if you take the LSAT, then you are able to go to law school, um, even though technically other things could be preventing that. I think that's where things get really tricky is when the if-then statement creates a sufficient and necessary condition that is the opposite or maybe not necessarily true with the world. Like another example would be if they said, um, you know, if you're on Pluto, then you're on Mars. Yeah. And yeah. It, it'd be like, in real life, it's like, what the? No way, that's not true. But you have to accept that as a premise. Okay, so, all right, now for now, if you're on Pluto, you're on Mars. Does that mean that if you're on Mars, you're on Pluto? Well, no, because I have this fundamental understanding of the way sufficient and necessary works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think that's the difficulty. That in real life, there are no true sufficient and necessary conditions. Like, you might think that a 180 on the L set is sufficient for law school, but if a, a serial killer with public convictions... Got a 180 on the L said he's not going to a law school. Uh, it just it doesn't happen. So so something like that, even something that should be feels like it should be sufficient in real life is never absolute. But um, how you got to think about sufficient conditions on the L side is if I say if I uh, if I take the L and I'm going to law school, you got to say one that that's totally absolute and that every single person who takes goes to law school according to the statement, and two. We don't know anything else. Like we know nothing about not taking the LSAT. We know nothing about 4.0 GPAs. Like if you're just thinking in terms of sufficient necessary, you really just know one thing, one thing only. It's a very different way of thinking than the more intuitive thinking we do to think about stuff in the real world. Yeah, yeah. It's a good point that you do have to accept the premises as fact, right? This comes up a lot in the logical reasoning. Yeah where they'll give you some kind of funky rules and, and you're, they're puzzled by them or you might even disagree with them, but you have to accept them. It's like we're doing a thought experiment now. You know, Imagine that this was true, if this is true, and then you can sort of like use common sense to think about it. Like when you're making objections to, to the logic, right? When they get to the conclusion, that's when you can definitely bring in some common sense yeah. and say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I think, could this be false or how could this be false? is a very good question to ask when you're trying to figure out the flaw in an argument or with a, a conditional or something like that. 
but but that's only that's only objecting to the the conclusions yeah. that they draw from exactly. the premises. It's never objecting to yeah. the premises themselves. Yeah, I would I would beef that up and say not only is it a good question, it's like a pretty fundamental question. I think a lot of people skip over and they just read the argument and they say, "Okay, let me go see what flaw sounds good." As opposed to yeah, asking right. themselves that first, you know? Yeah, the answers are just going to mess you up. They're designed to be traps. Yeah, we're talking specifically about the flaw category on the logical reasoning now, which was not really on our agenda. But I, I do get, um, it's fairly common actually that I have students, especially new students, telling me, yeah, I just can't get the hang of these flaw questions. And for me, it's like, well, those are the easiest ones because they're going to give you some bullshit argument and then you just tell the tell them why it's bullshit and then you go find the answer in the answer choices. But yeah, the, the, the problem, and this applies more to all types of logical reasoning questions, I think, the problem, most students just dive straight into the answer choices without any sort of a prediction and that's when you get in trouble. Yeah. So this last question, or Graham, Nathan, did you guys have anything more to say on necessary versus efficient or thinking logically? Mm. No. I think I'm good. Okay. So the last question, or I guess I don't know if it's a question, it's more of well, what do you guys think about this this above the law piece calling it's called killing the LSAT is a bad deal for students. Um it looks like it's by Ellie Mistel. Um so first off, what's the what's the point of this art article or post? So I proposed that we talk about this. Um, I read this a few weeks ago. I thought that it was awesome. It's on Above the Law. Again, the title is Killing the LSAT is a Bad Deal for Students. We'll post it uh, in the show notes on thinkinglsat.com by Ellie Mistel. It's really well written. It's really clever. I laughed out loud a couple of times while I was reading it. You should find this guy, follow him on Twitter and everything. He's he's great, I think. Um, and the it's, you know, there's a bit of news, uh, some Listeners might have heard this that there's a couple law schools that are no longer accepting the are no longer requiring the LSAT. I'm seeing here University of Iowa and uh, SUNY Buffalo dropping their LSAT requirement, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, Ellie calls this a three pronged attack on potential law students. He's basically saying, hey, this is a move by low ranked law schools to uh, rip you off admit you even though you're not a good candidate for law school and essentially take your money. Um, I don't know, Graham, do you have some thoughts? Yeah, I think if a school is letting you in because you haven't taken the LSAT, like there's a lot of people that just want to get to law school, but that's a very risky move in the current American law school market because it's in the middle of a bubble where tuitions are like astronomically high or like 50,000 or probably more, you end up with a lot of debt and potentially poor employment prospects for some schools. So if you have not a gigantic salary and a ton of debt, you're in a pretty rough position. The way people are getting around this is if you have enough GPA and LSAT scored and some schools will give you a scholarship and your effective tuition is a lot lower. But if you're getting admitted without the LSAT, then probably they're putting you into the category of like just having you pay a sticker price. I, I don't know if you know any more details on, on that point. I just know that these are not super high ranked schools. You know, this would be, I think it would be an entirely different deal. And I think 
Ellie would probably agree that if it was Harvard that was not that was not requiring the LSAT, um, Harvard is equipped to do that, right? Harvard um, is <laughs> they're going to have so many applicants that they you know they they could look at someone's transcript from from Stanford with their 4.0 and their experience working in investment banking or whatever, and they could probably say like, oh yeah, we're we're willing to admit this person without the LSAT because we know they would do great on the LSAT anyway if they took it. Which is actually what Georgetown does, at least with its own students. You apply on the basis of your GPA alone if you're a Georgetown undergrad and you can pretty much get into law school early decision. And and of course, if you're a Georgetown student, then they already know your SAT score, right? Yeah. Or your ACT mm-hmm. score, or they know your four-year GPA at Georgetown, and they know that you're. They know that. So then, yeah, they they don't have to require the LSAT. But when we're talking about SUNY Buffalo and the University of Iowa College of Law, um, these schools do not get a whole mountain of very competitive candidates, and uh, at least according to this above the law writer. Um, He's seeing this as an attack and basically a ripoff. So my question is, should people even be going to these schools anyway? I mean, regardless, these are all lower-ranked schools, right? Are we talking like really low-ranked? Because maybe regardless of whether they require the LSAT, maybe people shouldn't even be considering them. Is that going too far? (laughs) Um, I think think it might be a bit too far. I'm just looking at the law school transparency reports. I don't know if you guys know that site. LST School Reports, a great resource. University of Iowa is probably a good bet if you want to work in Iowa and they give you some kind of a scholarship. I see they have a 76.3 employment score and only a 15.8% underemployment score. Now, that that doesn't sound very good, but a lot of other schools are like 30, 40% underemployment. Like, it's very grim, whereas this one looks fine. But if you wanted to work in, say, New York then maybe I wouldn't go to the University of Iowa on the basis of them not requiring the LSAT. I think that would probably be a a bad move. Well, in that case, even if you even if they did require the LSAT, you probably wouldn't want to go there, right? I mean, you'd want to go somewhere, even maybe a slightly lower-ranked school in New York. Yeah. Yeah, I think with these regional schools, it's it, you, you just have to look a little bit deeper, right? You have to know people who have go, who've gone to the school. You have to know people in the legal community in Iowa City, Iowa, and if you know lawyers who have gone to University of Iowa and they're telling you do this, then you know then that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think maybe Ellie's point was a broader one that getting rid of the LSAT more generally could be really bad for students. Uh, if it if it was just this desperate ploy by law schools to um, increase their flagging enrollment numbers. Oh, so did he mention that that might be a possible trend? Is that other even higher ranked schools would do this? Um, I believe so. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, and that while you're looking for that, I I definitely think that could be disastrous because. What's going on with these schools right now, especially the lower-ranked ones, they're playing a bit of a game of musical chairs where a bunch of them are going to have to close because enrollment numbers are down so far that they just don't have the revenue they used to. And so they're in this desperate scramble to get more students into law school seats so that they're not the ones that have to close and it'll be some other guy. And if schools started dropping the LSAT just as a ploy to get more people in, then that's when it would start getting to be... uh, 
you know, not a favor to people to not require the LSAT because it would be probably mostly the schools that are the worst, the most precarious, and you might even go to them and then end up with no alma mater in uh, three, four years if the school closes after you graduate. Yeah. I, I found it to be a very interesting piece. Uh, I, I think, you know, I, I don't, I'm, I'm definitely not intending to slam on these two particular schools. I do. I just think that everybody should go read this article and um, give it some thought. He calls it uh, to steal his best, uh, to steal his best joke. He called it a manhole cover. Um, at one point he called the LSAT a manhole cover um, to keep you from, you know, falling into uh, a, a potentially fatal trap. And he also called it, um, he, he <laughs> likened it to the law school version. Getting rid of the LSAT is like a law school version of the guy who tells you that he doesn't use condoms because it kills the mood. Um, <laughs> I quite enjoyed um, the condom metaphor. And especially if it's a manhole size uh, condom, then that's even more interesting. But uh, no, everybody should go read this uh, article and uh, let us know yeah. what you think in the comments. Yeah, because I mean, I think the LSAT has some value in telling you whether you can read legal cases. I mean, have you got, did you guys go to law school? Yes. Yes. There are, the legal cases are denser than the LSAT, right? Oh, I would say, well, at least there's a lot more to read. <laughs> Thankfully, the LSAT's short. Yeah, the reading yeah. in law school is quite a bit harder than the reading on the LSAT. Yeah, so it's not a perfect test, but I'd say like it's telling you something and that if you're going into a legal career, you're going to have to do a lot of very hard reading. And so if you want to like skip the LSAT just to avoid the hard reading on the LSAT, well, that might, yeah, like his, his manful analogy is a very good one. Well, to be fair, though, a lot of people have been griping about the LSAT for a while because they're saying, hey, look, it might be a good predictor of success in law school, but it's not necessarily a good predictor of your success as an attorney, depending on what kind of law you go into, because there's a whole variety of different types of law. I'm not saying there's not a correlation at all, but I think when you're looking at the LSAT versus, hey, look, I want to become a lawyer who does X, and this stupid test is in my way, and I could do a lot better, um, and those skills aren't really reflected in the test. You know, I think there's some merit there. Yeah, that. That's a good point. They, they say for any profession that like the amount of time you spend actually doing the thing your profession is about is maybe like 10% of your total time. I would say now most of my work is not doing the LSAT or explaining it, surprisingly. I mean, I think that's a fair. It's a it's a fair objection to to say you know the LSAT's not a perfect test and it's not a perfect predictor of success. But the elephant in the room here is the bar exam. You know the the bar exam is not a perfect test either, but the bar exam is legally required if you want to practice law. And so these, you know, if the schools are saying like, "Oh, we can just do away with the LSAT and 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 just yeah, well, come on in, you know, pay us one hundred and fifty thousand dollars," and then oh yeah, there is this one big scary standardized test uh, afterward, but you don't have to take the big scary standardized test beforehand. You know, give us the hundred and fifty grand, and then worry about this big, scary, standardized test. Um, and I think that's the point that that um, this yeah. article is making. I think that's a very good point because it's it's frankly a pretty bad time to want to be a lawyer right now. In the past, it wasn't. You couldn't really. Oh, Graham, Graham, we're gonna have to edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go ahead. 
Well, there's there's a big downside risk. You know, before your biggest risk for doing a lawyer for doing a law degree is like, oh, well, I don't like being a lawyer. But now your biggest risk is like, oh, I can't get a law job and I have two hundred thousand in debt. It's just like you've got to be more sure about this law thing than you used to be in the past. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, any other thoughts on that article before we wrap up? No. Let's end on that <laughs> super motivating note. Uh, go back to studying. Wear, wear, wear condoms. There's, there's a risk out there. <laughs> hey, thanks, Graham. <laughs> hey, Graham, how, how do people find out more about you, get in touch with you, etc.? cetera? Uh, they can go to lsathacks.com. They'd want to check out uh, lsathacks.com slash explanations, where I've got a bunch of free explanations for LSAT practice tests. Okay, cool. Cool. And uh, how's it going with the split on, on Reddit? I know you split uh, the LSAT page from the law school admissions page. How's that been going? Oh, I'm really pleased with how that's going. It, the, law, the admissions form is very active, especially now that we're in more of an admissions phase of the cycle than an LSAT phase. So if people haven't been to Reddit before, where do they go? What do they do? Oh, uh, so they go to reddit.com slash r slash LSAT. Everything on Reddit has a slash r slash so else and then LSAT's a subreddit, or if you go to slash r slash law school admissions, that's a subreddit for admissions, and you can make an account and ask questions or just go there and read. There's a lot of people posting about their experiences in a way that you don't really see on a lot of other parts of the internet, um, except for top law schools forum. It's most similar to that. So you can get a lot of very good information from hearing rather than reading about it in some blog posts, hearing people's actual experience with LSAT prep or with getting admitted. Great. Perfect. Graham, thanks for coming back on. Yeah, thanks.